Before this pandemic, protests against climate change were getting bigger and bigger with each and every protest, seemingly always larger than the one that preceded it. On Tuesday, we spoke with the social ecologist Andreas Malm about his new book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which argues that decades of peaceful, nonviolent climate change activism has got us nothing but every year setting annual fossil fuel burning records. That is, until the pandemic forced all of us out of our cars and into our homes in quarantine. Protests of all kinds had been put on hold by the coronavirus, that is, until the Minneapolis police killed George Floyd, which brought out protesters not only in Minneapolis, but across the United States and around the world. Protest actions worldwide found common ground in police violence and brutality, as so many protesters had witnessed or been victims of aggressive police force internationally. They all saw the inequality now enforced by police through the assault that is neoliberalism and the disappearance of community services only to be replaced with more and more policing. Activists everywhere began to see policing for what it is, a class project disinvesting from those who need it and benefiting the wealthy. In France, the Gilets Jaunes, or Yellow Vest movement, showed their affinity with the protests against police in the United States by engaging in their own actions protesting law enforcement, as many movements did all over the planet. And a few will talk to anthropologist Ida Susser about her article, COVID, Police Brutality, and Race, Our Ongoing French Mobilizations Breaking Through the Class Boundaries, which she wrote, for Focal Blog, that's F-O-C-A-A-L Blog, the blog of Focal, Journal of Global and Historical Anthropology. Ida is Distinguished Professor of Anthropology at Hunter College and the City University of New York Graduate Center, and she has conducted ethnographic research in the United States, South, Southern Africa, and Puerto Rico with uh, respect to urban social movements and the urban commons, gender, the global AIDS epidemic, and environmental movements. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your week? I saw you on Monday, but I haven't seen you since fixed a couch like that had been broken for six months. That's how I spent my birthday. <laughs> had you been uh, had you been sitting on an uneven, on a tilted couch for a long time? Yeah, I don't want to get into it. <laughs> it's kind of grim. Did uh, you put a book under it? That's usually what people do. No, I uh, used shims and screws. 
<laughs> it works now. I don't make a noise when I sit on it, so I'm uh, <laughs> guessing I've improved my life to some measurable degree. Well, let's get to something that's far more important than the level of your couch. Alex, please remind us, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what are they going to name the austerity bill? What are they going to name the austerity bill? We got a lot of yeah, great a answers of to this one. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your incredible support. We truly appreciate it. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. During this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff revisits the U.S. military's violations of the hospitality code. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest again. This week's question is, what are they going to name the austerity bill? What are they going to name the austerity bill? Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. We got an email sent to us at chuck at thisishell.com about something I said at the beginning of Monday's show when I said that the indoctrination of American exceptionalism and innocence that we all suffer from through our patriotic history education that is imposed upon us from kindergarten until we graduate high school explains the kind of denialism and alternative and alternative realities that so many in last week's U.S. Capitol siege clearly embrace with their rhetoric and simplistic reading of history. And it's not just the people who laid siege to the U.S. Capitol. It's also the people who were offended by those who are laying siege to the U.S. Capitol. They all are indoctrinated in the same American exceptionalism and innocence that we all are. Sarah writes to say, Dear Chuck, I adore your show and am a Patreon member for years and have recommended it to many people. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate it. I love your rants. My disagreement comes from a place of love, as they say. Your rant about the understanding of American history by the rioters who entered the Capitol building, blaming the education system, is off. I'm not saying it doesn't play a part, but in my opinion, as a retired Chicago public school librarian and lifelong educator, it is a small part compared to popular culture, advertising, the mainstream media, and the various internet platforms where people get their information today. I'm just going to put a little mark right there. Uh, I don't think children pay very much attention to history in elementary school and high school, except in rare cases. But as adults, when our lives are impacted by so many malevolent forces, as they are now for most citizens of the United States, we turn to the sources that are all around us. Those sources tell us on and on that our personal decisions make our destiny. This rings false, so other more fringe explanations seem to make sense. In my view, the protesters or rioters or whatever you want to call them are victims of a neoliberal myth that they are entitled to an American dream that they cannot achieve. They are frustrated and angry, and that anger is directed at the United States government. This is partly correct on their part. Look at the U.S. government's lack of respect for other countries' institutions. For example, the looting of the Iraqi Museum, which I would call a similar act to the capital break-in that had consequences for all of world history. Add to this the fact that a large percentage of our male population is armed and trained for war compared to other countries, and we have a great situation for the CIA to exploit as they have in many other countries. Honestly, I feel bad for those people who are being used as pawns 
Now I sound like a conspiracy theorist. Please don't blame the teachers. You'd be surprised how much are trying to dispel myths of American exceptionalism. All the best and happy new year, Sarah in Chicago. Now, I agree with everything you say, Sarah. That said, in, I gotta get this other page here. So I wanna, uh, make sure I quote her correctly. Let me get back to this right here. Uh, I agree with everything you say. That said, in no way was I, I blaming teachers. Teachers, in many cases, do not have control of the curriculum and are limited to only a few texts from which they can teach. And when it comes to history, those texts are often filled with lessons for teaching patriotism and not having a better understanding of the United States, which is what history classes are supposed to be about. Although many on the right, many conservatives believe that they're supposed to be about learning patriotism. Sure, you may have lucked out by living in a big city or a college town where elementary and high school education is a bit more enlightened. Hell, you may have gone to Clemente High School here in Chicago, which at one time was using uh, Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States as a text, and I think it still is. In no way am I blaming teachers. And that's why the word teacher never came up in Monday's rant. The point was that we are all steeped and trained and indoctrinated and brainwashed in the denialism of American exceptionalism and innocence from a very young age. We are told that this is the greatest country ever and that any doubting of that is absurd. Despite this nation being founded on genocide, its economic success grounded in slavery, causing the constant economic growth, causing climate change, centuries of benefiting from exploiting others through colonialism and imperialism, especially based on race, and the overthrowing of democracies with which the United States does not agree, none of which will be taught in elementary or high school history classes because it's unpatriotic. However, Sarah, you are correct that it's not only in the classroom and this propaganda would not succeed if it was not, as you say, in the sources all around us, popular culture, advertising, the mainstream media, and the various internet platforms where people get their information today as you write. It's, as you say, in the sources all around us that echo that blind patriotism in the United States and unquestioning loyalty to neoliberalism and capitalism nearly every second of every minute of every hour of every day. Thank you, Sarah, for your very, very thoughtful and insightful email. If you want to send us your thoughts on the show, please email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Coming up, the global uprising against police brutality. We'll also have Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff visits the U.S. military's violations of the hospitality code. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are they going to name the austerity bill? What are they going to name the austerity bill? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of today's show. Live from the nightmare of want, this is how the pandemic has put protests on hold. Well, not all protests. Despite a deadly virus becoming more virulent and more deadly around the world, people took to the streets to protest police violence in the wake of the death of George Floyd. It's as if the protests not only defied the pandemic, but the seemingly endless divides among the working class, as well as the divides between workers and the middle class that have plagued activism for far too long. Here to explain how that divisiveness may finally be in the process of being overcome 
anthropologist Ida Susser wrote the article, COVID, Police, Brutality, and Race Are Ongoing French Mobilizations Breaking Through the Class Boundaries for Focal Blog, which is the blog of Focal, F-O-C-A-A-L, Journal of Global and Historical Anthropology. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ida. Hi. It's great to have you on the show. When discussing the protests in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd, you write that on May 31st, 2020, the U.S. exploded in protest to address the super exploitation of racism, which has uniquely scarred its history. This was followed by international demonstrations, including massive demonstrations in Paris against police brutality, a common theme of the Gilets Jaunes, a protest starting in November 2018. Now, the Gilets Jaunes or Yellow Vest movement started because of an increase in fuel taxes. That's how it was originally reported. It has been discussed and reported on in many ways, including how the yellow vests should not be supported by climate change activists because they want to lower taxes on the fossil fuels that cause global warming. But it's now understood as a protest over inequality in general, as the Macron government gave a tax cut to the wealthy. Yet you see it as a protest against police brutality, which is something I've not heard in what little U.S. coverage there has been of the protest. What impact is the Black Lives Matter movement having on protests against inequality happening globally? Did BLM introduce police violence to global organizing against inequality? Well, France has its own racial history, its own history of the war in Algeria, of immigrants who are treated badly. They have their own police brutality against poor people of color and young men. Very, very, uh, their own kind, as the U.S. has the history of the Civil War. You know, there are different ways in which this kind of police brutality and racism is manifest. And certainly it was protest in France uh, since the late 90s. And certainly in the early 2000s, there were three young boys who were murdered um, in Paris. And um, so, and there were protests then. So there's a history in France of uh, this this kind of, uh, 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 it's not just here in the US. And then, However, when the Gilets Jaunes came after a movement that was more like our American, uh, we think of as Occupy, you know, Occupy Wall Street, which was more like a clearly left youth or young people's movement that went all through France. And they focused somewhat, I certainly saw them uh, focusing on, on, police brutality against young men of color. And they tried to work together with people who had uh, no papers. There were lots of ways in which they tried to coordinate across color issues and across citizenship issues. However, the Gilets Jaunes, when they came in, which was 2018, was seen in France as a white movement. They were seen as very unusual because they represented people beyond Paris, although the previous movement, Nuit de Boue, had been beyond Paris also. But the Gilets Jaunes was seen as somehow, I don't know, like, like you think of as white working class. You know, the image or the, the idea that there's some group that are more French in some way, and they were rebelling, and they were thinking of themselves in terms of, we were like the French Revolution. 
you know, they 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 modeled themselves on the French Revolution. They used the um, ideas of the French Revolution. They used the symbols of the French Revolution, the complaints of the French Revolution. They were, you know, there's a kind of nationalism in the identification with the French Revolution. So they were not seen as including uh, people of color or super exploited groups, although they were very much women were very important. However, they expected the police to be on their side. They came, many of them were related to police and had been treated reasonably, you know, in their outside of Paris, the things that they did, they'd been treated reasonably well by police, which the people in Paris and Nui Dubu had not. And um, so when the Gilets Jaunes started coming to Paris, they expected that the police would kind of give them a pass like you saw at the Capitol with the Trumpites last week. I think the Gilets Jaunes expected that, but they found totally different. They thought the police were one of them and they were beaten up unbelievably. People lost eyes, people lost hands, people had grenades explode on their backs, uh, tear gas. Um, and they started a movement against police brutality among the gilets jaunes. Uh, they, they brought in the wounded. One of their leadership lost his eye. It was unbelievable. In my, my blog, I have a little photo of the police, but when you saw, I couldn't believe what was happening, neither could the French, what was happening on Wednesday at the Capitol because <laughs> you should have seen the police who came out for the gilets jaunes. I mean, riot gear in the thousands. I, I mean, it's quite shocking. You couldn't believe what happened at the Capitol because it was so different. So the riot gear in their thousands against this group had thought of themselves as the authentic French. So there was lots of stereotypes about the Gilets Jaunes, which are not really true. They weren't right, they weren't left. I don't know, you have to watch a movement to understand its political base and its political base can shift. I've written a lot about how mass mobilizations are not one thing. They can go from the right to the left. It all depends on the moment, the historical contingency. And people didn't know what the Gilets Jaunes were. Anyway, they started to mobilize particularly against police brutality. And then they were shut down with COVID on March 1st. I went to the last demonstration March 1st and on March, I don't remember, a week later, France went into confinement and all demonstrations were shut down. And they didn't come out until the police brutality, uh, the French came out May 11th, I think. I get the dates wrong. But then they had some Julie Jean demonstrations and then right away, when the Black Lives Matter happened, like May 31st, then early June, you got huge, immense demonstrations in Paris. I mean, immense, bigger than I've ever seen. And they were about being about police brutality and it included both the Gilets Jaunes and Black Lives Matter and the issues that Black Lives Matter is. And it was in direct international response to what was happening in the US. I want to ask you about uh, the class divides that might be able to happen with this kind of focus on police brutality. But first, you, you say something that I want to make sure that people understand, because I think it's 
kind of foundational to your argument. You write that in May, following the beginning of the Black Lives Matter actions here in the States, the Paris protests included the Gilets Jaunes, but focused specifically on the brutality against youth and people of color. In these important new developments, we have seen an international mobilization, which may be breaking down or breaking through some of the fragmentations of the working class between so-called but no longer stable working classes, the imagined middle classes, also at risk of instability, and the super-exploited subjects divided by racism, sexism, colonialism, citizenship, and other forms of historical subordinations. Now, I know this is just kind of an aside, but I want to make sure that we flesh this out a little bit. What do you mean by an imagined middle class? (coughs) Well, you know, if you follow the transformation of the U.S. or, or Europe, but even more in the U.S., the increasing, uh, I, I really think that there's a myth of stability in any, any world, you know, if you really look at what's happened. My, my understanding of democracy, my understanding of capitalism uh, is that we're always in contested situations. You can call it class, but, but in fact, we're not quite sure what class is today. Like you just asked me about the working class and our, the middle class and the imagined middle class. I mean, in the United States, we have a very different vision of class and working class than they do in Europe. But in the United States, um, we, people who had good, quote, stable working class jobs in the 50s and the 60s, they used to be called the affluent worker. It's long lost. We don't know them anymore. But they would be able to buy a boat. They'd have uh, house even a second house in the country and that was based on say jobs in the steel industry white jobs in in detroit etc etc in the car auto industry and they had one in the 20th century industrial workers had one especially in the u.s but also in europe over the through the 50s and 60s what we would call the keynesian compromise um, and the social contract uh, they had won a certain decade or so, or three decades, they call it in France, the trente glorieuse, the 30 years of affluence, same from uh, 1950 to 1980. Um, American workers had won a level of stability and ability for their children to go on to college and become doctors and lawyers and all kinds of other things that had never been the case before. And in that same process, Americans and Europeans had one access to higher education and the prejudices or what we would say the subordination, the super exploited groups, which at, you know, began, uh, we talk about the, you know, like the immigrants being like the Irish, the other groups that the Italians, after World War II, they were also able to participate in this affluence. And in, in France also, and it began to include the, the kids of, uh, you know, anti-Semitism began to be reduced and people like participated um, in the US and elsewhere. So then we saw what some people today, they call it the neoliberal turn, Um, but we saw what I would call the exportation of industry from the centers and capital, because this was uh, 
the destruction, the beginning of the degradation of what people thought of themselves as middle class. So first we called it deindustrialization or exploitation of industry. Um, later on, it was called the flexible economy because it was like just in time, you know, you manufacture things in the Pacific Rim and you bring them here just in time. And workers in the centers of capital that included France, Germany, Britain, and the US, but especially Britain and the US because of the Thatcher-Reagan policies, which we now call neoliberalism, which were incredibly, we see them as coming from Milton Friedman, were incredibly harsh. Uh, in the US, it started with 1975 fiscal crisis in New York City, board to city drop dead. I wrote a book about that and that was what I started my first research in. So Ford to city drop dead was Ford following the Nixon White House saying, we're going to implement neoliberalism. We're going to implement, we're not going to give any money to the New York state or to any of these industrial states that are losing industry. We're not going to fund their social services anymore. And we're moving towards the police and the carceral state, et cetera, et cetera. So that move destabilized that idea of the affluent worker. And it also, over time, in the 1980s, because of the cutbacks in social services, because of the cutbacks in, in uh, public education and higher education and the expenses of higher education, it began to, over time, destroy the, quotes imaginary middle class. So that what I would argue that it wasn't just with the 2008 crash at all that the middle class was being undermined, but with 2008 and the debt that David Graeber wrote about, you know, he was an anthropologist, a brilliant anthropologist, with the recognition that we had come to a kind of economy dependent on debt financialization, which was a shift actually. And now we call it financialization as industry has left and been, the, our economy now is dependent on debt and financialization. At that moment with 2008, people began to call it austerity politics. It had been in place in the third world for 30 years in the South, global South, whatever you want to call it. So that movement of 2008 was like the incredible destruction of the middle class. And that is why with Occupy in 2011, it took a few years. The conservatives or the Tea Party were quicker. Uh, by 2011 and Occupy, you got the recognition of the centrality of debt and you got the recognition of, in the ideas of Americans and the ideas worldwide, they got it in Spain first. Occupy started in Europe in Spain in 2011 in May. Um, in June in, in, in Portugal and, you know, then in September in the U.S. So Occupy recognized this shift, the 99%. And that's why I say the imaginary middle class, because we know that the middle class has been subject to the same risk and instability as what had originally destroyed the stable working class. They've been displaced. It's displacement. And middle-class people can no longer 
They can go bankrupt from health bills. They can go bankrupt from housing changes, you know, with the foreclosures. They can, they can sink and they're terrified and they have sunk into a broader, unequal working class. So that's why I talk about the imagined working class. So why does police brutality against youth and people of color, why does that cross all the divides within the working class and any common ground with what you call an imagined middle class? Why does uh, brutality against youth and people of color bring so many groups, so many ideas together? Is police brutality the issue that brings all of the long-held concerns of the left together? Is that where they all intersect? Is police brutality the common ground for the left globally? I believe that it's the common ground this year. <laughs> I believe that it, there are so many fragmentations and racism was one of the most shocking and the most dramatic and one of the hardest to cross. Uh, I believe there are many ways, like for example, the Gilets jaunes have something they call convergence, which was trying to bring together the Gilets jaunes with the climate movements like many gilets jaunes joined extinction rebellion which was a, a new climate movement that began in 2019 and it was more of a middle class movement also but but what i'm trying to say is this now one of the hardest barriers to cross is the color barrier in demonstrations one of the easiest ways to divide american uh the the American 99%, let's say, or the French 99%, or the British 9%, is to rail. That's what the whisper has been in the US. You know, we can do better than the black population. We can hate the immigrant population. The undocumented are taking our services. In, in Britain, it's been talking about immigration in the same way. When they, they argued for, the argument for Brexit was a completely fake, fake demonstration of pictures of people of color coming into Britain who weren't, it wasn't even, wasn't even anywhere near Britain. It was on the borders from uh, Czech, uh, Czech Republic and stuff like that. So color and in, in France also, it's seen as, you know, one of the, they can't even talk about it. You can't even measure it. The census is not allowed to count it. And, in France, there's this discussion of laïcité, which is you can't mention ethnic or race differences, color differences, um, or, or you know everything is secular. You can't mention religion. So the thing is, you can't mention race. So in France, the kind of secret or underlying division came after the war in Algeria, and the idea that people of color, Muslims, etc were the enemy, but you, which comes out of the history of colonialism of the French. So these divisions are probably the most dramatic in each of these countries in very different ways. And the hardest, the hardest for social movements to cut across. And what I have seen and what we have seen in this year of COVID with the horrors of COVID and death and divisions, we have seen ways in which progressive movements have cut across that color division. You saw it in the civil rights movement, the early civil rights movement, you know, uh, the, 
the people, the three guys who were murdered, who went down to organize votes, uh, were black and white. They went down from the north to the south and they were murdered by, I guess, uh, right-wing clan members, I assume, in the south. But like in the 1960s, the civil rights movement included, and if you hear uh, what John Lewis used to talk about, it included cooperation of white and black movements. But then over time, that was destroyed. And we haven't seen that until now again. And John Lewis talked about that on the radio, actually. I heard him talking about it. You write how your ongoing research in France suggests that the mass demonstrations which began with the French Occupy movement, Nuit Debout, in 2016, and we covered here on our show, and continued through a variety of strikes among students, transportation workers, and others until the Gilets Jaunes demonstrations of 2018, and finally the massive pension demonstrations of 2019 and 2020, represent an effort to rebalance the pendulum in the struggles against the ever more virulent neoliberal assault. So is the common ground of these protests around the world even maybe more than police brutality, neoliberalism, and can opposition to neoliberalism overcome the same divides within the working class and what you call the imagined middle class? Yes, but you know, every time I, you on this program, I think the word neoliberalism is familiar, but people who I think of as having a very progressive vision who are not necessarily in left organizations and not in doctoral programs, whatever, they don't even know what the word neoliberalism means. I'm, I've been surprised. Like people that read my work, they often say, what do you mean by neoliberal? So I feel that we can say that, but it has to be said in another way. It has to be said that the assaults, like they say in France, the assaults of, and in, in Spain, the assaults on privatization, uh, the privatization of public resources. It, they call it in France, they call that stealing the state. And in France, they feel that their national health service is theirs, it belongs to them. They paid it with their taxes. And so part of what the Gilets Jaunes are saying is, when you privatize health services, you are stealing our health services. That's how they see it. And it was the same. I, I actually have done a huge amount of work in Spain because they started earlier in 2011. They were the first Occupy movement. And they had a similar progression to the one I just documented in France, but it started in 2011. And they now have a social democratic government, very fragile, but they do. And they had a party called Podemos and local movements that came out of it. And I studied that before I studied the French. And each of these places understood in a different way than Americans do that public resources, they believed that public resources belong to them. Like I don't hear Americans saying Medicare belongs to us. Americans, even the Tea Party, love their Medicare resources. They like their social security. You'll never take it away. Even Reagan couldn't take away social security. He tried and the, all the elderly people came out and you may not remember, but I was watching TV and like, I forgot there was a guy who came out and sat on a car and he was like 85 or something. When Reagan tried to, uh, they formed something called the Gray Panthers. Reagan tried to cut social security. He could not do it. That's like the, the line. 
And I think if people understand that that's what the neoliberal assault is about, it's about taking away your social security. It's about, and, and, and Trump mentioned this and Bush GW mentioned it, taking away your Medicare benefits. People love their Medicare benefits. Everybody I know, somebody goes into hospital who's 65 and they come out and they can have six weeks of nurses visiting them. You take that for granted. How would you look after? You need a lot more, but how would you look after sick people if you didn't have that? And in France, the people in the Gilets Jaunes were people aged 45 to, to 90. Whereas the people in Nuit Debout were the younger generation. Because that's what I mean about fragments joining together. In the latest, like the COVID demonstrations, post-COVID, it was the Nuit Debout generation plus the Gilets Jaunes plus the Black Lives Matter. You know, that's, but it's not that these groups do not have their own particular histories and their own particular understandings. Oh, plus the environmental, I don't know, I keep, that's huge. And I think these words that we use need to be interpreted differently in each of these different histories. But I think in the United States, debt was a very important way of crossing those lines. There's the debt of people who, foreclose their housing, the debt of healthcare, the debt of student loans. So it crosses many different generations and also many different fragmented groups by race, by undocumented groups. Um, I, I think that there's tremendous understood historical conflict, <clears throat> even in the South, where after New Orleans, after Katrina, there was a lot of hiring but they hired <clears throat> the undocumented to fix the roads and fix the bridges that were destroyed by the flood. They didn't hire back the African-American citizen population that had fled. So there's, they, there are less African-Americans in New Orleans now than there were. And when they redid New Orleans after 2005, after Katrina, they brought in charter schools and privatized schools instead of public schools. The old idea of public schools was undermined starting after Katrina, just like Betsy DeVoe is trying to do nationally. So I think we have to look at the particular histories at, and use words. That's something that Podemos in Spain and some of the movements in France uh, have been very clear about, that we don't want to, I've been a culprit of that. I mean, no, no, what have I been? I've been bad at that. I use words like neoliberal and class and stuff. But I think we need to reinvent our vocabulary because the world has changed. We are not, quotes, Marxists or leftists because in the Gilets Jaunes wouldn't talk about left and right because we need to see the world as it's changing using frameworks from the past, but also opening our eyes to new coalitions. And now the 99%, which was a brilliant one in my view. And it's also the 99% can be used in environmental uh, unification over the issues that we're facing today. And you write that the massive assaults of neoliberalism of the past 50 years destroyed the lives of displaced industrial workers and further devastated minority immigrant and native communities under COVID-19, both in France and more drastically the U.S. These losses, long manifested in differential mortality rates, among others, have become immediate life and death issues. And as you 
We're saying neoliberalism is not a word you hear or read in the more establishment media outlets. You don't hear it at the dining table. You don't hear debates or discussions of neoliberalism at the corner bar or on Sunday morning talk shows or the cable news outlets. And it's rarely even mentioned in the New York Times or Washington Post. So what happens, say, to displaced industrial workers? What happens to them when they don't have access to debates and discussions of neoliberalism, concepts of neoliberalism that are seemingly shunned by the media and our popular debate? I think that what became popular, where I talk about the exploitation of industry, which was accompanied by an information era, there's a lot of literature on that, I think what people who were losing their jobs, and one person wrote that I had as a student, he now is big shot professional, but he wrote a book for his dissertation in the 1980s on what happened in Barberton, Ohio, Greg Pappas. What happened to the displaced rubber tire workers as rubber tires, Seba, what was it, Seba, whatever, the tire company went to Mexico. Um, and he talked about exactly what happened to those displaced workers. And they not only did they lose their jobs in Barberton, Ohio, but they lost their health care insurance and they lost their connection with the union. They no longer had a union hall. They no longer had a place to meet. They were uh, isolated in their families. And when they got sick, there was nowhere to go. So they went to the hospital So the hospital had no health insurance. So the hospital started to go into debt. So what happens is the whole town of Barberton uh, lost their previous stable economy. And they blamed, quotes, globalization. That's what people blamed. And so they got a sort of nationalism that came out of that and a sort of Reagan kind of where's look good morning America view that if we only were just American, we could get back what we used to have. And it was clearly how that was interpreted in the news. And I think we have to, that's why I don't think words like neoliberal are useful to us, although I understand it, it it's I use it. But, but I think we have to talk about displacement and then how this is something that through American workers from the 1970s, We can talk about uh, devastation and what do they call it? Brownfields, all the old industries, pollution. It all fits together. You know, those those are the areas with the the greatest super funds uh, all through New Jersey. When I, I'm not, as you can hear, I'm not American. (laughs) Well, I am an American citizen, but I originally traveled a lot when I was a kid. And now when I drove into America, I landed in Dulles Airport and my family drove up the N95, Dulles Airport, which is now called something else in Washington, DC. And uh, we drove up the N90, that's not the N95, that's masks. We drove up through New Jersey, through Newark. And that was 1965. It was pink. I couldn't believe it. I said, this is the hell of America. Talk about this is hell. It was pink and incredible stink, and it was like lunchtime. We drove up to the, through that uh, New Jersey Turnpike and up to the George Washington Bridge. This was totally iconic to me. And it was totally pink and stinking. And that's now a Superfund site. 
So that was industrial America. And obviously that was, those people are all displaced. They no longer have those jobs, but we have the contamination. So I think we have to describe it in real terms. It's no longer pink when you drive up the New Jersey Turnpike. I felt like I was driving to hell and that was my vision of America, I have to say. Not anymore, then I was very happy here. But you know, that was the way I walked into this country. Yeah, I can understand how that would look like hell. Uh, I have flown into New Jersey in the past, and it looks like hell from the air as well. You write austerity policies should be seen not only as a consequence of the Great Recession in the wake of the financial crisis, but rather as the latest, most destructive stage of a neoliberal assault that began worldwide in the 1970s. What do we miss in the commonly held understanding, the what we're told by the media? What, what do we miss in our understanding of austerity when we believe it is nothing more than a break glass in case of fire, in case of emergency strategy? Well, that's what I've always been talking about, um, that throughout Europe, before the oil crisis and the United States, um, there was a plan. It was, it was, corporations weren't really happy. Capitalism was already leaving the centers of capital because we used to call it multinational corporations because they didn't like the high salaries, well, the high wages that were paid to the American working class and the European working class, which were in the centers of capital. And they could see in um, Southern Africa or um, even rural parts of Ireland or um, the Far East, you know, on the Pacific Rim, Vietnam, South Vietnam, they could see places where, um, or Puerto Rico, where US industry couldn't invest and could pay lower wages without unions. So, or first they move south. We're all familiar with that being Americans. You know, first the industry moved south to get lower wages, but then, and south didn't have the union organization that the north had. And we're now in the north losing that too. So. They didn't have the rights to collective bargaining in the Southern states. So there was already, you know, it's nothing is stable. I'm always thinking that we feel, I would love to feel stable. I wish I was living at home with my mother and father and my grandparents in one place. You know, we'd love, I want stability. We all want stability. But if you look at history, it's an ongoing struggle. Even when we're feeling stable, like the 30 years of affluence, and, and there you had poor black Americans, you know, we thought of Har Michael Harrington, who was a socialist who wrote The Other America. It was like there was progress. African-Americans and poor people in the Appalachians were going to do better. America was going forwards and the progress would keep going. But meanwhile, the corporations were not really happy with not having, with having to pay higher wages and benefits and all the things that the unions had won. So that's why they started to export industry. And then this became then seen as, you know, we were in this country supposedly going towards higher kind of jobs like information technology, lawyers, da, 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 da. 
But in fact, large, huge numbers of Americans were not getting those jobs. And even the people in the quotes, quotes, professional industries were losing, were losing their stability too. So um, it's been a long-term process. And the thing is in the French and Spanish, or especially in the French example, they have a much stronger union move, much stronger. And so they have held on to their rights and Germany too, much longer than Americans and British, much longer. So through the, from 1980, we stopped, I haven't even mentioned imperialism, we stopped sending direct aid to uh, poor countries around the world. That's what has been called structural adjustment. That started in 1980 with what they call the Washington Consensus. So austerity was put in place, the way we understand austerity, was put in place in what we might call the Global South from 1980. That's what Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize economist, wrote about, the increasing inequality in the third world. Then from 2008, oh, really earlier, but it became strongly implemented in the centers of capital. We saw it there. It was happening long before to poor people. Debt was a much bigger issue in black neighborhoods. Foreclosures were much bigger. The, the exploitation of debt and financialization of debt was much, much bigger in, from the 2000s in poor neighborhoods in the US. And, and debt is an old way of making money. Like in the 50s, in Britain, they used the same process, capitalists, of getting money under, out of the poorest people. They would buy things on credit. Credit has always been a way to exploit the poorest and get very high interest rates. But it became much bigger in the US in the 2000s in minority communities. And then later on, in, after 2008, it became much, much more clearly recognized in this country and in Europe. We have been speaking with anthropologist Ida Susser, who wrote the article, COVID, Police Brutality and Race Are Ongoing French Mobilizations Breaking Through the Class Boundaries. Ida is a distinguished professor of anthropology at Hunter College in the City University of New York Graduate Center and has conducted ethnographic research in the U.S., Southern Africa, and Puerto Rico with respect to urban social movements and the urban commons, gender, the global AIDS epidemic, and environmental movements. I've got one last question for you, Ida, and I promise we do this with each and every one of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. And often <laughs> it just ends up being in the final category of our audience hating your response because so often our guests are incredibly honest and truthful and insightful. And that's usually kind of depressing. You write that as 20th century social philosopher and so, so much more, Karl Polanyi, Polanyi uh, knew rage against the disastrous failures of neoliberalism could be expressed in brutal and fascist ways. However, the protests that we see today are a hopeful sign in their inclusive progressive moments and bringing together many groups who are all at risk in different ways and at different levels or aspects of exploitation. They're demanding a rebalancing of the destructive neoliberal assault of the past 50 years. They're constructing an inclusive 
exclusive but uneven critical community, which may serve as an antidote against the growing fury which is fueling nationalism and exclusivism, is what we are seeing in the U.S. What we saw last Wednesday at the U.S. Capitol is that rage against the disastrous failures of neoliberalism being expressed in brutal and fascist ways. Yes. It is. I would say that the difference between, I was just on a Zoom with the Gilles Jean yesterday and I was thinking about this, that the difference between the yellow vests in France and the rage, the Trumpite rage, shocking rage that we saw in the Capitol is not the rage. The difference is what their demands are and who is leading them and who is, who is siphoning that rage. And in the U.S., the racial whispers and the anti-immigrant whisper, or no, they say now foghorns, the foghorns of exclusivism, of nationalism, have had a huge effect. There was a group of displaced people, all from the middle classes with money down, who really want Trump in, to the poor people who are enraged. There was a need, and that need has been met now in the US by the foghorn of Trump. But there also was the other side, which I was documenting in this paper, of the Black Lives Matter, which was addressing that same need in a more progressive way, in a much more progressive way. And, you know, the pendulum is what people talked about Polanyi before World War II. The pendulum of fascism could have gone. The pendulum was a working class living in chaos because of liberalism, because of the chaos of the market, they can go either way. And the chaos in, uh, in the 1930s in Europe led in some countries to fascism. Fascism was appearing everywhere. It was in Britain, it was in France, but it only led to one Hitler or Mussolini. It didn't get its full breadth in Britain or France or the US. We have the KKK here. The question is, now, this is a rage we understand. This is the destruction of the welfare state has presented us with a rage. How is that rage going to be manifest in the next year? And thank God Trump has perhaps got his second impeachment because this is the opening question you, you sh we have, I have. And I, I was seeing a hopeful, I was really feeling that it can go this way and we see it in the little elections that little the elections that we just had, the possibilities to reinstate a progressive view with a foghorn. Ida, I cannot thank you enough. This article is fascinating and our discussion is it's just been incredible. I really appreciate you being on our show and you can count on us annoying you in the future to have you back on. I really Thank you. I'm really, really grateful to be able to talk. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ida. Happy New Year and enjoy your weekend. Okay, good to meet. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is Helen. If you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This podcast at the same place shortly after this week on Patreon. We are. Hmm. Well, we're not sure what we're going to be doing. We are either sharing an interview we did 15 years ago to this day back in January 2006 with 
Barbara Olshansky, who at the time was assistant legal director of, of the Center for Constitutional Rights, and that group's organization in lawsuit against President George W. Bush, the head of the National Security Agency and the heads of the other major security agencies, challenging the NSA's surveillance of persons within the United States without judicial approval or statutory authorization. And we also spoke with her about her work on bringing justice to the detainees in Guantanamo. Remember them? It's it's a trip in the way back machine when surve- surveillance and political prisoners held illegally actually were concerns of the American public. So we'll probably be sharing that interview. But if not, I just wanted to mention this to everybody who is listening. Way back in 2000, I believe, we spoke with Native American activist Carrie Dan. Carrie uh, was working with the Western Shoshone and the possible and the way in which minerals were being exploited, their lands were being exploited and ruined by extraction. So... We had her on the show back in 2000, and she told us about her campaign, her ongoing campaign, even with her sister Mary, against mineral extraction on native land. And she passed away on New Year's Day. So we're going to be sharing that interview. We're having difficulty finding stuff in our archives. This is why we need you to subscribe on Patreon so we can afford to have our archives rebuilt. So uh, we may be sharing the Carrie Dan interview. We may be sharing the Barbara Olshansky interview. We're not too sure, but we're either talking talking about how the United States has uh, employed a system of surveillance upon all of its citizens, or we'll be talking about the legacy of U.S. genocide against the Native Americans. Meanwhile, we're going back up north to small-town America, where Trump won the November presidential election over Joe Biden by a two-to-one margin, and the same margin Trump beat Hillary Clinton by back in 2016. Last year on Patreon, and sometimes on the show, we would share the musings by readers of a northern Michigan-based weekly community newspaper called the Houghton Lake Resorter to give you a feel for what those who live in rural areas and still get the local paper and are driven to actually write letters to said paper were saying and thinking about their politics in the presidential race. It was a, a microcosm of right-wing religious righteousness that prepared anyone who is listening for exactly what happened last Wednesday at the U.S. Capitol. However, immediately following Election Day, my gift subscription to the resorter was suspended because the paper addressed to me was being returned to the resorter offices as undeliverable. They told me that they would try to deliver the paper again. Didn't receive it for a couple of months, so you hadn't heard me talk about what's going on in small-town America. Then suddenly, last Friday... I got the New Year's Eve issue. Tuesday, I received a couple more issues of it. Yesterday, I got a cup. I got another issue of it. So, no paper for two months, and then in six days, four issues. So, after today's show, I'll be reading a lot of the resorter and probably dealing with it by smoking a lot of weed, just as a, a quick taste of what the resorter has to offer. Despite the virus surging throughout the county at levels that the area had not seen until now, the paper regularly refers to the time we are living in now as the time after COVID as if it's over. That's the kind of denialism you can find in Trump country that leads to assaults on the federal government. But you can only hear our 15-year-old interview with Barbara Olshansky or maybe our 20-year-old interview with Carrie Dan. And my report from Trump country by becoming a Patreon subscriber, patreon.com slash this is hell. Thanks to our newest subscriber on Patreon. Thanks to Dev. Alex, this week's question from hell is, what are they going to name the austerity bill? Do you have, want to share some more answers, or do you want to just go to Jeff? Uh, let's do a little bit before, and then I'll get to the uh, back half after Jeffy. Cool. So what are they 
going to name the austerity bill. Tynan, <laughs> who are they anyway? I uh, just like to put a little stink on they. Uh, Tynan S says the Go Back to Brunch Act. I like that. Peter J says the Buck a Beer Bill. For further instructions, please see Aunt. Don't know. O N T. A person named Aunt. I don't know. Andrew G Ontario? says. Are we supposed to be going to Ontario? That's what I was actually thinking. Yeah. Uh, Andrew G says the Anti 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 Austerity Act. Oh, that's great. That's great. It's anti and austerity so mm-hmm. it must be good yeah uh and wally r says the baby got better the baby got back better act got a kowtow to the black vote you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our facebook page you can tweet it to us you can email it to us but we have to have your answer in by the time that jeff is done with the moment of truth which is coming up now another end of the world is possible this is hell i know you have hefe on the line what? I have a heap and a helping. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. In the summer of 2005, a team of four U.S. Navy SEALs dropped into Afghanistan's Hindu Kush on a mission to capture a supposedly high-level Taliban leader. Only one SEAL survived. He was later played by Mark Wahlberg, a former white rapper and underwear model, in the movie Lone Survivor. In the book on which the movie was based, Marky and his fellow pinnipeds were ambushed by between 35 and 50 Taliban. Reconnaissance experts and those with access to intelligence on Taliban activity in the area that day say it couldn't have been more than 8 or 10, and probably fewer. The man they were hunting, contrary to the contention of Marky Mark's real-life counterpart, was no big-shot pal of Osama bin Laden. He was the leader of a small Taliban-adjacent militia who had no link to U.S. casualties. And so this very expensive mission that cost the lives of three of Markey's comrades, along with a special operations Chinook helicopter and the lives of 16 elite soldiers inside it who'd come to aid the original SEAL team, was a mission based on lies. 19 super soldiers were killed while performing an operation amounting to a total bullshit job, and the helicopter was shot down. The little militia that could have but didn't recovered three M4 carbines with grenade launchers, a field laptop whose undamaged hard drive contained locations of possible targets, gear for night vision, and a sniper scope, which gave the U.S. military a chance to order replacements, including a new tandem rotor heavy lift military vehicle from Boeing Defense Space and Security. A side note, April 20th of last year, in the quarter following the start of the pandemic lockdown, the defense side of Boeing did better financially than its civilian side. The last time this happened was in 2008, after the world economy collapsed, proving that if you're looking for a recession-proof investment, the mass murder industry is where it's at. But back to the summer of 2005, Markey was crawling, injured, to an uncertain survival down a cliff face when he was found by a Pashtun villager named Muhammad Gulab Khan. Gulab Khan then acted according to the code of hospitality called the Pashtunwali. The entire population of Afghanistan, whether Pashtun or not, follows the Pashtunwali code. 
When the U.S. government demanded the Taliban turn over Osama bin Laden to them, the Taliban were following Pashtunwali by defying that command. It was because of Pashtunwali that the U.S. chose to attack Afghanistan as punishment for the massacre at the World Trade Center. They blew the living bodies of civilian Afghanis to pieces, hundreds of thousands of them, and tortured some and ruined the lives of some. In the years before 9-11, the human rights outcry from the women of Afghanistan, even after viral videos of public executions, couldn't bring about the help of the U.S. military. But the hospitality code of antique herding peoples could bring down the vengeance of an imperialistic state shocked by the blowback from its own covert machinations. But that gift to the mass murder industry wasn't enough. Dick Cheney and his blood brothers in the Project for a New American Century were insatiable. So they invented a reason to do the same to Iraq, creating endless acres of bullshit jobs. Whatever scenario you can think of, whatever story you're told of a terrifying firefight and the courage and heroics that snatched warriors from the jaws of death at the last moment, it all takes place on a stage set by lies, poor judgment, callous greed, and craving for power. The dictates of the Pashtunwali led Gulab Khan to bring Marky to his village. In the movie, the villagers engage in a splash-tastic firefight against the Taliban militia who want to take Marky prisoner. In reality, no such fight ever occurred. The supposed big shot of the militia had too few men. He came to the village and demanded that the U.S. flippered marine mammal be given over to him, but the villagers, all sworn to Pashtunwali, outnumbered the militia, who backed down in the face of an ancient hospitality tradition, and skedaddled back to their little outpost. In that story, hospitality turned away wrath. In the days after 9-11, hospitality brought down wrath. On the one hand, you have lies, poor judgment, callous greed, conscious or unconscious racism, and craving for power. On the other hand, you have a dictate that predates the Old Testament to extend comfort and protection to a stranger in need of aid. It's uncertain the human species can survive the current war between these two impulses, but it's not entirely clear that they are mutually exclusive impulses. They do both exist in the same species, after all. To illustrate the ambiguity, here is a bright spot along the squall line between the hospitality and anti-hospitality movements. I speak, of course, of the principle of hospitaliano. Hospitaliano walks that frightening line between unlimited tolerance with unlimited pasta and limits on tolerance and pasta. In sum, hospitaliano limits a tolerant society's tolerance for intolerance. In 1935, Joseph Goebbels said, but in German, Something like, we have declared openly that we have used democratic methods in order to gain power, and that after assuming power, we would deny them to our adversaries. Goebbels was admitting that he'd warned the Republic, if you, with your democracy and press freedoms and freedom of travel, allow us Nazis to use these tools of tolerance to gain power, we will then deny these tools of tolerance to any but ourselves. There's a cartoon going around called The Paradox of Tolerance, which has gotten the panties of a few Karl Popper scholars all in a twist. It basically says, if you're a tolerant society and you want to stay that way, you must not be tolerant to the intolerant. 
It's not really a paradox unless you take the terms to their extremes. It's actually a way out of an apparent paradox. But we don't need Karl Popper or a philosophically inaccurate cartoon to find our way out of that paradox because we have something simpler, the above-mentioned principle of hospitaliano. I quote now from a well-documented hoax of the last few days. It has come to our attention that a few of our guests have taken part in a vicious attack on our nation's capital. We have worked with the FBI and the Holiday Inn in Washington, D.C. to identify several guests who both frequented our restaurants and participated in the violent uprising against our government this week. In response, Olive Garden has revoked our never-ending pasta pass from Sean Hannity. Olive Garden is dedicated to creating a safe and delightful environment for our guests with what we call Ospitaliano. This year has been difficult for uh, so many of us, and we cannot wait to see your family smiling in our restaurants once again. Until that time, your favorite dishes from Olive Garden are available to order online for both pickup and delivery. And until next time, this has been the Moment of Truth. Buongiorno. Oh, Jeffy. Jeffy, Jeffy. How are what? you, sir? What I do? Nothing. <laughs> I guess I owe you a microphone? You know what you really owe me? Well, yes. I, you don't owe me a microphone, but I'm, I am going to need one. My, 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 my MacBook decided to reject all... Uh, little 35 millimeter mini jacks too, but I, I I figured I found a workaround around that, and I also have got a uh, phantom power thing, so whatever mic I choose or you choose uh, should work fine. But yeah, the mic died. I don't. Uh, what I, really I don't like. Want, though, of course, is my um, my little tin. This is Hell Cup and my hat. Oh. All right. What do you want? A winter hat or a trucker's cap? Oh, a, a, a beanie. All right. A winter hat. I didn't think you wanted I'm one. Not... You're in California. What the hell do you need that for? Yeah, but you but you said they were coming. Also, I get a. a oh, don't worry. I'm gonna. I'll email you. The, listen, Chuck. <laughs> Chuck. I sent you the, the I sent you and Laura the address and everything of my PO box. Now I'm not sure. Oh yeah, the... no, I remember. <laughs> Look, you you sent that over the holidays. The holidays were a blur. I know. Believe me. Believe All right, so me. we'll I'm send you that work. winter cat as soon as possible and the coffee mug as well. Oh, you know what? Can you send me some glug too? <laughs> yeah, I don't know <laughs> if you can send liquor in the mail. All right, Jeffy, stay beautiful. You too. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Alex, do you have the rest of this week's answers to the question from Hell, which is, what are they going to name the austerity bill? Uh, yep. What are they going to name the austerity bill? What are they, they, sorry, going to name the austerity <laughs> bill uh, via DM, email, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Rock Taster says, build back basic. <laughs> David T says, "Austerity Bill says I'm. I really regret uh, regret introducing a character to the show with lore named Austerity Bill. <laughs> uh, Austerity Bill says, "Dope will get you through times of no money better than money will get you through times of no dope." <laughs> uh, Mr. A B wins the award for a uh, response I least wanted to read on on air, which is the Going In Dry Act. <laughs> cheap say, Cheap Seats says, "The What Did You Expect Act." Miss K B says, "Make America Great Again Act." <laughs> 
what what are they going to name the austerity bill? Third Cloud says, you know it's coming. Balkanize the United States says the Ligma Act. I'm not going to inquire further into the yeah, meaning of Ligma. I look into that. I have an idea. Every Oss says they'll blame Trump and say it's his mess. It'll be something to do with that. A repair and restore bill, etc. Neoliberal Dystopia says the Build Back Broke Act. Matt M says the National Reconciliation Act. And Adam B chimes in with two options. One, can't one up Promessa, but looking forward to even but looking forward even more to the Black Lives Matter bill that'll give us what we've been waiting for to achieve racial justice in America, a George Floyd post office. And then also his second option, the Marie Antoinette Generosity Act slash MAGA Act. Uh, Fred B. Fred B. says, "Well, Chuck, since this is hell, they'll name it the Pithy Pain Act. Precarity and immiseration now." <laughs> and finally, our friends Hypocrite Reader, who actually have a new issue coming out tomorrow, so check that out at Hypocrite Reader's website. The Thomas Malthus Memorial Crisis Stimulus Act. <laughs> That's really good. Uh, let's see. The answers I liked the most were uh, Tynan saying the Go Back to Brunch Act. That's really good. I liked Pete's You People Disgust Me Act. The Joe Biden Memorial Bootstrap Act is what Dan said. And Dan L. said the Paul Von Hindenburg Act, which I also really enjoyed. Philip saying the White New Deal. Thomas saying Go Back to Sleep Act. That's really good. Aaron saying the Tina Act. Chris saying the Saving Your Social Security from Yourself Act, which I really enjoy. Nathaniel saying the Despairs Act. Any one of those really get you, Alex? I thought you were going to say the uh, White New Deal. Yeah. <laughs> that was uh, the one you crowned the winner, the first one we read in, uh, yeah. back on Monday. Do you think we should stick with that? Because I really like Shh, Go Back to Sleep and the Saving Your Social Security from Yourself Act. Yeah, the Social Security one's good. Yeah, let's go with that. Chris, you are the winner of this week's Question from Hell for answering our Question from Hell with the response, the Saving Your Social Security from Yourself Act. You have won your choice of our merchandise at thisishell.com. Chris, all you have to do is just message us via Facebook or email us your mailing address and tell us which piece of merchandise you want that you can see right now at thisishell.com when you click on support and we'll get it in the mail to you as soon as possible. My answer to this week's question from hell, what are they going to name the austerity bill? You know, something boring and sounds like it isn't problematic whatsoever so i figure it's going to be patriotic while invoking a sense of security so i'm going with the protecting american families act thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question mel and special thanks to everyone who joined us on patreon this week as well as all of you who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support to show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com with Alex revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is listening to Radiohead's Amnesiac, taking a hot bath, and pressing that pressure point between your thumb and index finger. Thanks to all of this week's guests, including lawyer and farmer activist Avik Saha, National General Secretary of Swaraj, India, who was on the show to talk about the India farmers strike. Also, thanks to social ecology scholar Andreas Malm, author of How to Blow Up a Pipeline, Learning to Fight in a World on Fire. Thanks to yesterday's guest, historian Marsha Chatlin, author of Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. And finally, thanks to today's guest, anthropologist Ida Sasser, who wrote the article COVID, 
police brutality and race. Talk to you tomorrow when we will be playing maybe a 2006 interview with an attorney about pressing charges and their ongoing lawsuit against the George W. Bush administration for surveillance. Or we'll be talking to or playing an interview with the late great Native American activist Carrie Dan from around the year 2000. We're not sure which, so the best way for you to find out is to subscribe at patreon.com slash this is hell and we'll be going back up north we'll definitely be doing that to find out what was happening in trump country in the lead up to last week's siege of the u.s capitol but you can only hear all of that by subscribing to this is hell on patreon and listening tomorrow friday at 10 a.m chicago time at patreon.com slash this is hell there's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows that's by sitting down in the lotus position turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.